Hello, and welcome to Pull Quotes, a podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Laura Howells. And I'm Jacob McNair. On my way to becoming a lawyer, I learned that success isn't necessarily about merit. It's also about fitting in. As a person of color, that's a roadblock that comes up again and again. Hadia Rodrigue recently wrote that in a long Globe and Mail piece called Black on Bay Street. She was one of only a few Black lawyers at her Toronto firm. And she wrote about the challenges of having to fit into this predominantly white world, where she faced subtle and sometimes not so subtle racism. But this isn't just a problem on Bay Street. As most journalists know, Canadian newsrooms also suffer from a serious lack of diversity. And journalists of color face the same kind of roadblocks. Hadia is now a PhD student in organizational behavior at the University of Toronto, also a freelance journalist and co-host of Canada Land Commons. She joined us this week along with two alumnae of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. Fatima Syed is now a reporter at the Toronto Star and has previously written for The Walrus, Spacing, and This Magazine. She was behind a sizable multimedia project on diversity issues for the Ryerson Review two years ago. And Eternity Martis is associate editor at Extra. Her work has appeared in numerous outlets, including Vice, Salon, CTV, Canada Land, Huffington Post, and The Walrus. And she was the co-creator of the Ryerson Review's first regular podcast, Off Leash. We'll talk to all three in a moment on Pull Quotes. Pidia, your piece Black on Bay Street was a deeply personal account of your experiences. Why was now the time to write about these issues? Uh, is it, Am I allowed to say it's because I needed something to write about for Banff? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, um, I had always been interested in these issues is the reason why I went back to uh, do my PhD in the first place. Um, I wanted to know why there weren't more people who looked like me um, around me. And so I, you know, I was talking to someone and they were telling me about, you know, their upcoming interview on Bay Street. And I'm like, it doesn't sound like much has changed. And I went through this 11 years ago. And so I thought it would be interesting just to write about my experience because it really doesn't seem like much has changed. And in that way, um, people kind of know what it's like for people who are not like the majority to go through this process. What do you think it is about this moment in time that led to your piece running on you know, the front cover of a major national newspaper and, and a newspaper like the Globe and Mail, where the audience is predominantly similar to the people that you're writing about in that law firm? I think that's probably one of the reasons that they, when they read it, they realized that they could empathize with what, or empathize or understand maybe a bit more um, about my experience and that other people who do read this paper and who are making these decisions um, might get something out of it. And I think that people are realizing that there is an appetite for stories that are not the stories of the majority. And this was one of them. Yeah, I got such a huge response shared so widely. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, were you surprised at all? Yep. <laughs> um, you know, I was expecting my friends to share it, maybe. But this has been shared so far over 13,000 times on Facebook. So those are definitely not all of my friends. Um, I don't have that many <laughs> friends. 
Um, but it seemed like people were able to kind of no matter what their background, find something that resonated. So whether it was parental relationships, support of your parents, or feeling like the other, even if you weren't a black woman, um, if you were from a different socioeconomic class or from a different race um, or of a different gender than uh, the white men that populate the echel- upper echelon of boardrooms on Bay Street. Your piece talks about you know this very white Bay Street world that demands you fit in if you want to get ahead. Um, but this isn't just a problem restricted to downtown lawyers. Eternity and Fatima, I want to turn it over to you. What parallels do you see between Hadia's experience on Bay Street and what you see in Canadian media? Well, I think when it comes to either law, um, those offices, and offices in journalism, it's the same thing, right? It's the same people at the top. Um, who dismiss your experience, who don't see it as valid, and you're also still struggling. You're struggling to get in there, get your foot in there, um, and do what you're supposed to do, like everyone else. And so it's very similar. I think a- across the board, like any any job that you take, there's always going to be that group of you know older white, particularly males, um, who are up there, and it's very hard to get in. Um, there's a there's a ceiling, there's a glass ceiling, but also when you're a woman of color, there's like it's double panels, um, and yeah, so it's the same, I think. Yeah, I think the common trope between what Hadia wrote and sort of all the other industries that I'm familiar with is the imposter sy- syndrome. Like the imposter syndrome doesn't go away if you're a woman of color or a person of color; it just always stays with you, no matter how long you've been in the industry. You always have that sense of that very self-conscious sense of, oh, am I doing right by being here? Should I be doing more by being here? Uh, Am I using my platform well? So that imposter syndrome always stays with you. Like I've spoken to sort of journalists of color who've been in the industry for years and they still have it, which is both encouraging and discouraging in a way because you're like, oh, okay, we're in the same boat, but also, oh, that kind of sucks. The glass ceiling for minorities is actually called the concrete wall because <laughs> you can't even see. <laughs> There's nobody there. There's no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, Fatima, two years ago in the Ryerson Review, you uh, wrote extensively about um, diversity issues in Canadian journalism. I mean, right now, what do you see as the major problem facing I- people of color? I think the major problem still hasn't changed since two years ago. I think the major problem still is that there's not enough people of color. There's not enough diverse voices covering diverse issues. I think we're moving towards it. We're taking baby steps, like very, very tiny baby steps. But I think the problem is the same as it was two years ago, that there's not enough and there's not enough coverage of diverse issues and there's not enough numbers in the newsroom. Now, Hidia, in your piece, you talk a lot about this hiring process where, you know, lawyers take you out to lunch and you talk about hockey and shoes and things that really don't have anything to do with the law. And getting hired is a lot more about how you fit into the firm than how competent you are as a professional. I mean, similarly, getting work in the media is a lot about who you know and how you present yourself and your personal brand. How do you think the hiring process in journalism contributes to larger issues in the industry? I would imagine it's very similar and probably even more informal. Um, To some extent, I would guess it's probably based on pitches to some extent. You know, I've applied for all of two jobs in journalism. But again, you know, what pitches are going to be seen as valuable and what stories are going to be seen as valuable. Um, And so if I 
bring a story about a marginalized community is that seen as creative or important or something that the magazine or the newspaper wants to run. Um, whereas someone who might be bringing more mainstream issues might not have the same uh, problem. And you also get this sort of double-edged sword because you want these issues to be covered in the newspaper. You don't necessarily always want to be the person, the black person writing about black people. You don't want to get pigeonholed yourself, but if you don't do it, literally nobody else will. And so you kind of get caught in this double bind to some extent. Yeah, I think that when it comes to the hiring process, they always tell you in this industry that it's not what you know, but who you know. I feel like a lot of it, as Hadia said, it's it's quite informal. Like there's a lot of like virtual handshakes. You can apply for a job and they may find somebody um, who they know or a friend of a friend who works there would get the job. Um, and I think what Fatima was saying about the lack of diversity, the problem is that we keep apologizing. We keep saying, oh, sorry, we'll do better, we'll do better, but we're not actually hiring people. And I've been in job interviews where I've been asked if I can write about anything else besides black issues, whatever that really? means. Yeah, and so at, at mainstream news organizations. And so they're more concerned about you possibly tainting you know, readership and content than seeing the positives or the benefit of what you can actually do. And right now I'm at Extra and we have two black editors and there's so many things that just you know, right from writing to like inputting into, you know, CMS and publishing that I think editors miss, like from photo choices to language to word, you know, the words that you choose. Um, we don't do that enough. And that's why we're always apologizing because we get people who know nothing about the communities they're talking about or writing about. And then they, you know, they make these mistakes and they apologize and then it happens again. Yeah, I think for me, it's always like, like Hadia said, it is a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you have the advantage where you have access to this world that not many people in the industry have access to. And you can write stories from that world that are important, that are necessary, and that should be told. But on the other hand, to what extent do you keep pitching those stories and become that person? Mm -hmm. Like, I always find myself, like, when I'm writing a cover letter and I know that they're going to ask for ideas, so I put in a few ideas in my cover letter, right? I'm always worried about the balance. Like, should I just go for immigration and diversity issues, which is what most of my ideas lean towards, or should I also just, you know, throw in a political story or throw in an arts and culture story just to show that, hey, um, yeah, I have a niche, but also I can do it all. I'm not that minority reporter. So it's it's a weird navigation of a balance that you kind of want to fight, but at the same time you want to keep because you there's an extent to which you can fight the system that doesn't always where you don't always win. And do you feel like editors can like lean on people of color as just, just to write you know that one story about a certain experience and then you know, never go back? And... For sure, for sure. Because the number of times that editors have come up to me to ask me either questions about sort of Muslim-related things for another story, just for like fact checks or confirmation, or the number of times they've heard of a story and then they come with me, it's like, hey, is this actually a story? Like, should we do this? So you do you do quickly become that person. And like Hadia said, you can't always fight it because if you're not going to answer their questions, who is? Yeah. Eternity, you talked a bit about like this you know, always apologizing and sort of not necessarily understanding the images and, and storylines that are coming out. And, and Hadia, in your piece, you talk about all these kind of subtle signals that you don't belong that come up in the legal world. I mean, how do you think journalism, you know, news stories and TV broadcasts also give off these signals and contribute to these? Um, well, when I was a student here, I, for the Ryerson Review of Journalism, I wrote a story called Collateral Damage about um, how 
journalists in Toronto cover gun, gun crime and how those the way they cover it affects black communities. And so that was a huge one because we spent quite some time writing those stories. And it's it's all in the language and it's in the perception. And so if you are, you know, like journalists are people and people have biases. So if you come, you know, you come in to work and you're assigned a story, you know, on a shooting, for example, um, and there happen to be black people involved in it, all those biases that you have in your home life, like your personal life, are going to come through. Um, and if there's no one there to check them, then they end up on the page and they end up, you know, on the news and people believe, you know, they believe the news. The truth is the news to them. And so when I was doing that story, for example, um, people just had these, you know, like I was asking journalists, well, why did you know, why did you choose this headline or why did you choose this mugshot for this photo for this person and for a white person? Why did they get a photo with their family? And they were like, uh, I don't really know, but they do know. It's, you know, it's they've internalized racism, they've internalized bias and they've put it on the page, but they don't actually see that. And so if we don't have people there who are, you know, unfortunately us sometimes who have to kind of put people in their place and be like, yo, this is really wrong. um, They're going to keep doing it. And it, it comes out. It comes out that way. It comes out. Maybe they don't want to actually write on that community or they don't even know how to approach a community and get into that community then you've got issues there. And so the whole structure of, of the industry is completely, you know, it's basically in shambles. We keep seeing the same stuff. There's a story on Jane and Finch, which is, you know, considered a, a poverty and a crime-ridden area. And you get stories about shootings that aren't at Jane and Finch, but they'll say it's in Jane and Finch. So, like, how do you approach that when you have no one in the newsroom to correct somebody? I want to add to that by saying... Um it, every time there's a story about the niqab ban, you see the same picture over and over again. And it's not necessarily a picture of a woman who wears the niqab in the city that isn't in question. But you see the same picture over and over again. And it's usually, um, I'm, I'm forgetting her name, but the woman who fought sort of to her citizenship rights mm-hmm. when they sort of denied her sort of access to a test because she was wearing a, a niqab. Um, and, and my other most recent example is the lack of coverage about the Somalia attacks. Like, some, we have the biggest Somalia diaspora in the world. And the fact that Canadian media did not do enough coverage of an attack that was massive in the history of Somalian sort of terrorism, that was that was ridiculous. That was actually ridiculous. Um, and then compare that to sort of the extensive coverage and attack in the United States gets. Like just days upon days upon weeks of coverage. We'll go into all the nuances. We'll interview everyone in the city. We'll, we'll sort of talk to all of the experts. But Somalia, nothing. Uh, or very little, at least. I, w- I shouldn't say nothing. There was some stuff, but there was nothing. So the disparity is real. And unfortunately, there's not enough people in the editor level of newsrooms questioning that and challenging that. But just things like, you know, the Rohingyas. When it first started, we weren't doing enough coverage. Now we're doing so much coverage because Canada is involved. So at a certain point, we have to start questioning, is a local angle really necessary for a story to be important? I mean, there there are so many diasporas in Toronto. It's like an amalgamation of diasporas. So why can't we do justice by covering sort of all the issues that everyone should be paying attention to and all the places in the world everyone should be paying attention to? Yeah, and very much sort of an assumption about who the audience is and what yeah. the audience will care about and assuming a certain kind of person reading that story. I don't think we give audiences enough credit, or at least I don't think newsrooms give audiences enough credit. But... You know, people thought Wonder Woman was going to flop <laughs> or like I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't, you know, people wouldn't want to go see it or like, you know, Get Out was one of the most successful movies of 2017 
and it was written by a black man about black issues and everybody saw it right so their appetite is there and uh if you want to make the bucks you know we are the growing population so i think toronto is now the visible minorities are more than 50 percent of the population even if you just want to follow the money even if your argument is that's what makes money well the tide is changing and the money is brown now so (laughs) 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 give me the receipts I mean, this conversation around uh, diversity in journalism has been going on uh, for a while now. There's this, there's an awareness that there is a lack of diversity in the industry. It's no secret. But, I mean, there's also questions about what diversity means and, and what is sort of like valuable, meaningful diversity. And, Hadia, you talk about, um, in your piece, you talk about being a quote-unquote acceptable kind of black person in the legal community that, you know, white people feel comfortable around and wondering, you know, how black is too much. And Fatima, last summer, you published a piece in The Walrus uh, where you talked also about this expectation of being a certain kind of Muslim. You wrote, according to mainstream white culture, it's okay to be Muslim, but only if you're the cool kind of Muslim, the Western Muslim, fashionable, current, hip, liberal, relatable, religious, but not too religious. Fatima and Eternity, when you're working as journalists, do you also feel like you're expected to fit into an acceptable version of your identity? Yeah. That's a short answer. (laughs) Yes. How so? I mean, okay. My this year during during Ramadan, it was the first time where I was overtly open about what was going on in my life. That yeah, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna have an iftar. I'm gonna go to late night prayers. I'm not gonna sleep until midnight. I was talking about it, and people were interested. But I hadn't done that until this year because I was always very self conscious about being the only person in the newsroom who'd be fasting who'd be sort of, you know, abstaining from food and drink and people might not get that and people have all these assumptions and I don't want to challenge all of them. I don't want to be the person that's challenging all of them. But this year I'm like, you know what? I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to do things. I'm going to get people to do an eat thing at work. Like, I'm, I'm going to do this. And the results were actually really cool because people were appreciative and people were involved. But at the same time, despite the success of that, I still find myself just slightly staying in my shell just for safety because, again, you don't know what assumptions people are going to look at you with and you don't know what sort of ideas they're going to come to you about your identity. And at a certain point, it gets exhausting just sort of challenging that. So I find that it's better to keep some of myself to myself so I can do my work and be appreciated for my work rather than you know, challenging every every facet of Muslim identity that people want to know about. So it is difficult. What, what do you feel like you have to hold back on in the newsroom? I don't know. Things like, you know, praying. Like, you know, I'll slip out rather than make a big hullabaloo about it. Things like, like what we do on Eid. Some people expect Eid to be like Christmas, but it's not. But it's very hard to explain that without sort of going into all the nuances because it's a very, very complicated population. So things like that, you just hold in because it's better to, well, it's not better. It's just easier. And you start talking about it and then people have questions and then you're spending like all of your time educating people about things that they could literally look up on the Internet. Yeah. Um, like when I when I like oh you're nice you'll tell me <laughs> like tell me all the things about black people yeah and when Go. I wrote when I wrote that piece in the walrus I got so many more questions than I expected to and I'm like 
I thought I answered them. Like, I thought this piece had all your answers, but you still have more answer questions for me to answer, and I don't know how else to answer it other than please read my piece again. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> it was very difficult to write. I don't write these kind of pieces. Please read it again. <laughs> I t I've taken a bit of a different approach. So, like, I've always assumed that you know, you have to be this kind of respectable person of color because your job is on the line. And where I work now, I'm like, I've, I'm a little bit more like myself. And I'm lucky that there are other black women in the office who are like, you know, they've, they've also taken to being like, well, I'm like, I'm black and I'm a woman and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want. That's a daily extra. Uh, yeah, at extra. And um, we have different departments, um, but I'm the only black woman in my, in my pod. Um, and we like I'm fine and if someone says something that's out of line I'm the first person to like keep track of it and you know call them out but maybe a year ago or two years ago I wouldn't have done that um, but I can't work in an environment where if people are allowed to say all these unchecked things I'm not going to sit there and and listen to it and if that cost me my job then they've you know then they've lost an editor but it's you know I'm not going to sit there and let people talk talk to me like that or talk in general about it um, and I've also become that person who has to explain things, but I would rather explain them and have them shut up, you know, after they say it and be checked than have to keep hearing it. And so I come into the office and I'm, this is who I am. And, you know, if you don't like it, that's fine. But, you know, most people respect it. And it's, it takes a lot of pressure off of you. Like you're not stressed or like, you know, if you, I'm, you know, I'm half Pakistani and I bring my food to the office, you know, this Fatima, you bring your food to the office and you're like, oh God, people are going to say, what's that smell? And I hear it about other people's food in the office. And you know what? I'm going to say something. You don't like my food. You can go to the other side of the office. Um, but I think that comes with time and that comes with kind of, take, you know, being at a point where you're fed up. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at. But I think it's also an environment thing. Like I I'm I can probably say this with certainty that I am sort of the intern at the star who gets the most hate mail purely based on sort of my name and sort of my identity. You like, get you know, hate mail? I get so much hate mail. <laughs> the tweets are insane. The emails are insane. I once wrote a piece about the Rohingyas and I got an email titled Burmese slut, which made no sense to me. But I'm like, okay. But I get I get so much hate mail. And at a certain point, I just don't have the energy to respond to it or to like challenge it. So I just like either hit delete or archive because I don't even want to read it. And I'm just like, okay, this is this is why I am sort of in my shell and not totally myself in this newsroom. And that's fine, I guess. All right. So Hadia just had to slip out for a meeting, but we'll carry on with Eternity and Fatima. Um, so Fatima, you get all this hate mail. Is this in response to particular kinds of stories that you write or just in general? Sometimes. It depends on the story. Like sometimes it is in response to a particularly controversial story. Other times it's just because. Now, I mean, how do you respond? How do you deal with that kind of emotional difficulty? I usually rant about it. I'll, 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 I, we have a Facebook support group. <laughs> and I usually just rant about it to my four other friends, and they'll sort of send me gifts and encouraging things, and <laughs> it'll be fine. Um, but yeah, some it depends on the extent of the hate mail. You, at a certain point, as a person of color in a newsroom, you expect it. You expect it to happen more um, than others, so you just learn to deal with it, and you learn to either just, you know, let it go, like pass it on. These are people who are going to hate on you and you can't do anything about it. Or you just learn to, you know, talk it out. Try not to let it crush you entirely and your identity as a journalist and just move forward. I mean, there's there's a focus on, you know, let's bring in more people of color. But do, do newsrooms 
provide the support when you're in the newsroom uh, and when you are hired um, to deal with like these kinds of challenges? Or do you feel like it's a supportive environment in the industry? I mean, I think I've been a bit lucky. Um, when I interned, um, I had they actually gave me a mentor. So they had read the things that I'd written about, and on my first day, they're like, "We're going to give you a mentor um, just to help you navigate this place. If you don't, if you want it, if you want the mentor, you can have uh, have her. If not, you know, we don't have to do this." So I was lucky there, and in my job now, I feel like there's support. Um, I I have the support of my my editor uh, who's there, and so I've been kind of lucky in that sense. But I don't know if I could say the same for other friends um, who just kind of feel lonely on a day to day basis, feel like their pitches are being dismissed, feel like they're being dismissed, and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I've I've also had I've been lucky in that I have had editors who were there and who are like, hey, if you get anything and it bothers you, just let us know and we'll deal with it. I also have some really incredibly mentors outside of the place where I work who are very accessible, like whenever I need them. Um, And friends are obviously great. So I wouldn't say there's a formalized system as such, but there are editors who care and there are people who care and who will listen to you and who will help you out. As long as you have the ability to reach out and, you know, access them when you need help, mm. when you're feeling low. Yeah, that's the great thing about this this industry. I feel like people don't let you fall on your butt like they want to help, um, especially if you are a you know journalist of color. There are always people who struggled before you who are willing to help you. And I've never felt let down by anybody yet, knock on wood. But, like, there's, there's definitely a support system there that, like, is not, you know, it's nothing structured or finalized but it's there it's just there you have to look you have to look for it yeah and sometimes it's from people that you don't really know that well but who just you know know that you exist in the, in the industry and they know what you're going through and they'll reach out like I remember like a, a month or so ago I, I spoke to Vicky Mo I don't know how to pronounce her last name Vicky Mochama Vicky Mochama thank you um and uh at an event and she was like yeah if you have any trouble just send me their name I'll kick their butts for you like and, and she doesn't know me and I don't know her very well but it's there's an informal support system out there that is very accessible so what's the solution you know if just sort of talking about diversity or you know trying to hire based on certain diversity quotas isn't working or isn't happening then i mean what should all journalists be thinking about doing i think um people need to challenge the norms that they accept and the perceptions that they have and start thinking about okay hey toronto is now a majority minority city I'm doing a story on transit. Um, Who uses transit? Okay, there's people from all over the city, but what kind of communities use transit that we may not go into that often? Like, whether it's Jane and Finch, whether it's Scarborough, whether it's, you know, Mississauga's suburbs, I don't know. Like, go into the communities that you wouldn't think of straight away. Challenge what you assume is the norm and, and see what story comes up, because I'm sure stories can become sort of much more interesting and much more powerful if we just, you know, look at things a different way. A, a friend was actually telling me just last night, he, he was writing a weather story. He's a radio rumor at the Toronto Star, and he was writing a weather story a couple of years ago. And one of his editors suggested, it was a very, very hot day, one of his editors suggested, hey, why don't you look at the weather in Dubai? or in Mumbai, or any of those hot places around the world, and see what it compares, because it's so hot today. And it turned out that Toronto was hotter than Dubai and Mumbai in India. And that's a great weather story that you wouldn't have put together. But I can bet you 100% every immigrant 
was had already been com- making this comparison informally in their dining rooms. Like, oh my god, it's so hot. It feels like we're in Dubai. Like, every immigrant would have been saying that. So that's like, you know, 20% of the population you've got just based on that story. Like, we're al- already talking about it. So it's just simple things. Just change the way you view a story and you approach a story and think about the people that you wouldn't normally talk to that might have a more interesting insight than those that you would have. Hmm. Yeah, there's no threat in seeing other perspectives. And I think that's a lot of the problem is that people feel threatened if we start telling these stories or look at different angles. It's going to like take over or something, right? Like what about the like what about the news and the breaking news? And that's not the case. I think if we all just, you know, expanded and read things, uh, read other things and just considered other perspectives, we could all bring something new, all of us, to a story. It wasn't too long ago that uh, Fatima and Eternity were both here at Ryerson studying. How well do you think journalism school equips people to deal with these kinds of issues? Honest answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's fine. It's fine. I think we were lucky that we had... Um, well, at least I can speak for myself. I was lucky that I had a mentor in Aswa Malik who started at the same time that we started the Master of Journalism. And she's just a vessel of information and just, you know, she shares her experiences as a diverse journalist of color. And if there were more Asma Maliks in, 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 at Ryerson, I think uh, a lot of people would have sort of access to that mentorship that you sometimes need as a young, diverse journalist. Yeah, um, I did not get to work as much with asthma while I was a student, but I do now, and like I'm super grateful for that. Like just seeing another face, you're like, yeah. ah. Um, and like on on my first day when I walked in, there was another woman of color in the class, and the first thing we did not know each other. We like went up to each other, and we were like, we're gonna be friends because this is gonna be a tough two years, and it was a tough two years. And there were times where, not necessarily. The content of the program, but maybe some of the the people involved in the program made me feel really alone or made me feel like the stories that I wasn't telling were of interest to anyone. And it would have been nice to have a few more asthmas or, you know, a few more people who were like, hey, that's kind of cool. Um, You're doing a good job or like these stories really do matter because there are many times where like I was ready to hit delete on a story I had worked on, like a feature I had worked on for like eight months. Um, and then I'd pitch them other places and people liked them, but I had no idea they were actually good. What would be an example of a story like that? Well, one of the one of the stories would be um, I wrote it for uh, for Hazlitt called Know Your History, Know Your Greatness. Um, and it was a story about slave history in uh, southwestern Ontario. And I like was ready to just delete, you know, hit delete, throw it in the trash can. And it was nominated for a National Magazine Award. And I, like, had really little, you know, little support in that story. But, you know, someone else saw someone else saw the potential in it. Um, so it's important to have diverse instructors. Even in that, one instructor can tell you one thing and another one's like, this is great. Yeah, I, th- I think, like, having instructors of different backgrounds also helps because it gives you access points into other communities that you might not have. Like, I still, like, to this day, I still... Everything I know about Indigenous reporting is from stuff that I've done myself. And it was just like, I wish we had more sort of access to these different communities and how to report on them and how to do it. But I found that I did a lot of the work on my own. Um, And I also do want to say that having students of diverse backgrounds is very, very, very helpful. To this day, my my four closest group of friends, one of them's Black, one of them's Egyptian Canadian, one of them's white, and one of them's Italian Canadian and a Muslim. And then there's me. 
like every time I think of an idea, my first sort of you know group to to pitch it to is them. I'm like, hey guys, what do you think? And they come up with all the angles that I wouldn't have thought of because they have all these different experiences. Um, and I know half of the stories that I've written would not have been as good without their input and their insight. So I think like just having people in the classroom, whether it's instructors or students, to challenge things, to say, hey, did you think of this? Or, hey, uh, what about this? Just having that conversation happen because the pool is so diverse is is just very necessary. Fatima and Eternity, thank you so much for speaking with me today. No problem. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> that was our conversation with Hadia Rodrigue, Fatma Syed, and Eternity Martis. Send us your feedback at pullquotes at ryerson.ca. Pull Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism, and you can find more on our website at rrj.ca. And if you're in Toronto, the Ryerson Review is having a conference next week about reporting during natural disasters. That's on November 21st from noon to 6 p.m. We've got some great speakers lined up, so join us if you can. It's free. And you can find a link to register on our Twitter, at Ryerson Review. Pull Quotes is produced by Laura Howells, Emily Pardo, and myself, Jacob McNair. Thanks to Angela Glover for technical assistance. Our executive producers are Sonia Fata and Stephen Trumper. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week.